Good morning. Good to see you. Let's find a seat real fast because, uh, again, this is a, a good bit of a passage and we've got a ways to go. So thank you so much for being here. It's so fun to see all your faces. And uh, I am going to try to cover quite a bit this we finished James this morning, which, as I've said before, is one of my very, very favorite books in all of Scripture. And I think if for every year of the rest of our lives, if we pulled our Bibles out in January and we said, okay, Lord, how do we want me to live? As I think about this new year in front of me, how do I redirect my life back to being close to you? And the book of James is it. Why is that true? We'll talk about that this morning. I have to breathe deep. I can't even tell you my morning, y'all. But uh, So I breathe deep, breathe in, pray, and then we're going to do God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a Thursday morning. Lord, we just quiet every other thought. And we just still our hearts and minds, Lord so that we can be near you and hear you this morning. Lord, teach your word. Speak it to our hearts. And Father, let us not be hearers only. Help us, Lord, to do what you've taught us to do. For we pray it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. <coughs> James chapter 5. How should Christians live? This is the last thing. Remember, James is writing to people who knew what it meant to look churchy. I was watching Jack Graham. Uh, Jim and I watched Jack Graham's message every Sunday morning before we head to our chapel service. It's just kind of one of those things we do together. So we were watching Jack preach. It was a week or two ago when uh, we heard him say something, and I just sat up, and I was like, that's me. He looked at his congregation and said something to the effect of, I'm an Old Testament Christian. And when I heard that phrase, I was like, yes, today I can tell you that's why I like the book of James. It's Old Testament Christianity. And what do I mean by that? One of the things we see in our world today is, you know, you don't hear that many sermons out of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, correct? You know, uh, the prophets are like Debbie Downer. Uh, that was a hard year for me to teach, but so important. Um, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve an unchanging God. The God of the Old Testament is still and will always be our God. When he said, I am, he is I am in the beginning, I am right now, and I always will be. That's what that phrase, I am, means. So why then, after the New Testament came to be, did we kind of uh, step away almost. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, another way you might say is to complete the law, what it had always been. I'm an Old Testament Christian because I believe we're still meant to lead a separate and holy life from the world. Goodness knows we dabble in it. We're always, Jesus taught us to be in the world, but not of it. 
And that's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? We go to places and we think, okay, how do we live in the world? And especially in the last 30 years, when phrases like seeker-friendly became so important to a church, that we weren't isolated, we weren't holier than thou, we weren't a Christian club that only some people felt like they should belong to. That is the one side of it. The other side of it is that you ought not be able to walk into an auditorium and act the same way you act in Walmart. We ought not look like we're in Walmart when we're in the house of God. There were some rules to being a Jewish person. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They married with a higher level of commitment. They lived their life set apart. Even to this day when you go to Israel, uh, a Jewish person, if I'm standing there talking to a group of ladies outside the women's restroom, waiting on them to be done, and I'll usually stay behind and make sure everybody's there before we move on. Uh, if, the, if a Jewish Orthodox Jewish man comes out of the men's restroom, he will go all the way around rather than pass our group of cackling women, cackling, chatting women, because they are careful with their holiness. The downside of that is it's easy for them to think, okay, because I walked all the way around this group, I'm right with God. And we all know that that's not how God measures righteousness, correct? So that's the difficulty in being an Old Testament Christian. It's the same thing it was to be in an Old Testament Jewish person, that works righteousness is easy for me. I'm an Old Testament Christian. I'm married to a preacher. I tend to measure, okay, I did okay because I didn't open my mouth and say anything wrong at this event or something like that, right? <coughs> and so we measure somehow our success in our faith by what we do. And James, of course, said, uh, listen, you may say works don't matter, but I will show you my faith by what I do. Remember that? He was very careful to say uh, a true faith is seen, it's obvious, it's lived out. That's Jewish Christianity. But I also think it's more than that. We're to be a spiritual example in the world. I, Jim and I have a game we play at airports. I've mentioned this before. We can literally peg Christians. I think, you, and I can peg a preacher three gates down. It, you know, seriously, hair parted on the side. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, of course, that's not really so true anymore, but it used to be really true. Uh, but we're supposed to be spiritual examples in the world. God gave us his spirit so that people could notice Jesus in us. That's why we were given his spirit. You ought to be able to tangibly notice the Holy Spirit in a person's life. It's usually when they're about to open their mouth and say something, and they go, oh, right? Because that's not, spirits just said, don't say that. 
Don't do that. Don't laugh at that. Don't be part of that. There are moments that the Holy Spirit, it, remember I describe it as that leash with the button on it that brings us back together. That's the way the Holy Spirit functions in our life. We are to live as an example of Christian love in the world. So there is a code of behaviors. There are laws. There are rules. And those rules aren't quite the same rules they were back in the 50s, right? Uh, I don't remember the last time I wore high heels to church. But I can remember the years when I never entered the church without them. And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of, of, and I kind of vote for them, but it's had an impact on what we know about being separate and holy. That is the definition of holy. It's separate, set apart. That's the definition, literally what the word holy means. So we live by God's standards, but his standards are unchanging. This is where I camped for a little while getting ready for today. God did not change his desires or his standards for his people. The new covenant just gave us more grace for the fact we weren't that good at living in. The new covenant just gave us forgiveness for not being able to keep to the laws that God had set out. The new covenant didn't change the laws. It just gave us more grace for them. And so when you pause and think about it and you remember all those rules from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, all of those things God wanted for his people. And he said, if you will live like this, I will pour blessing into your life. This will be your land. Your families will prosper. That message didn't change. That's still what God wants to do in our lives. He wants us to live in such a way that people see God in us and he can just pour his blessing onto us. He wants us to show the world this is what a child of God can live like. And so today I want to talk a little bit and close the book of James because I think it's one of the best books in scripture about living a total Bible faith. Old Testament, New Testament. This is what a child of God looks like. And so we've, he's been talking about that last week in this. This week's lesson begins now. Listen, you rich people. There is a very kind of sad division in the book of James. And it's between chapters 4 and 5. There are reasons to think that there is a break there, a natural break there that we need to pay attention. But chapters 4 and 5 are one sermon, essentially, one lesson. So to do chapter 5 without chapter 4, remembering chapter 4, is to not fully understand it. Uh, James has been talking to Christians who have scattered. Some of them have remained true. 
They have continued to live a wholly separate life. Others have started to filter into the world a little bit. And things are happening. James is hearing about it, and he writes this letter. Here's how you live it strong. The whole letter is about that. But when he says at the beginning of chapter 5, now listen, you rich people, it's a continuation of what he's been saying. By the way, when James says, now listen, you ought to think of it in terms of, remember when your college professor looked at everybody and said, now listen, this will be on the exam. And everybody grabs their pencil and they write every word that he's about to say. Uh, I can tell you now listen with James is exactly that. So let me pull up. There it is. Um, I, had to, I tried to remember this, and I decided to do this after I'd sent it off. So, but to really do this well, we have to remember chapter 4, where he said, What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's speaking to people who should know the Lord. He said, You covet, you slander, you have battles within. He said, When you ask, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives, self-centered motives. He said, You adulterous people, in other words, you're loving the world as much or more than you're loving me and my ways. He said, if you're a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. And he mentions Hosea, or I did. I'm sorry, that was me. Uh, he said, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously, jealously, that's a hard word to say, jealously longs for the spirit to dwell in us. He longs for us to live according to the spirit. He gives grace to us because he knows he can't. Then he says, the humble are people who are willing. The road to humility, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he comes near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Big word, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Contrast the beginning of chapter 5 with this. He's literally continuing that narrative when he says, Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. In chapter 4, he taught us to mourn and grieve that which separates us from God. Get your life right so that God can bless your life. And then he talks to people who are not interested in the wealth of God's riches. Instead, they're interested more in the wealth of this world. And he says, weep and well because of the misery that is coming on you. You have it all now, but think about your forever. Think about your eternity. And so that's why these verses, that's why he says, listen now, you rich people. It doesn't matter if you have nothing and you're suffering because you have nothing, or it doesn't matter if you have everything and you're suffering spiritually because you don't have enough of God. Regardless, we're all living in some way a little broken with the Lord, and we have to work our way back to center. And that's why he says... The life or the mindset of one outside the faith. He says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and well because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. This is not good news. 
You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Remember, last days, especially in a passage like this, is defined as the days following Jesus' ascension, the new covenant days. There are final days. There are end times. But in this case, last days, these are the days of the new covenant. And remember, Jesus talked about treasure in heaven, storing your treasure in heaven where what? Where the moths can't get to it, corrosion can't get to it. This is literally that lesson again from James. So he would ask the question, what's, the, what's your mindset? Are you living for the treasures of this world or are you living for treasure in heaven? Because that perspective changes a lot, doesn't it? When we live for eternal things, the things of this world, I love the song, grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That's the truth. That's the message that James is trying to say. He's trying to say, wherever you are, make your choices. Live your life in such a way that your eternity is made better. I was talking to Jim about this. It was kind of a fun conversation, but I looked at him, and I, I would say this. I was just saying this this morning. Had I married someone else, I believe I would have had a lesser eternity. I married the man God chose for me, and I am blessed not only in this life, but eternally because of all that he's taught me and helped me to know. Um, marrying Jim helped my eternal life. It increased my treasure in heaven. And when you think... When you look at your spouse that way, we ought to be there for one another spiritually. We ought to be helping them have a better eternal life, not just a better earthly life. That's our goal, and it should be true for everyone else in our lives as well. Our kids, are you helping your kids have a better eternal life or just do better here on earth? This is the mindset that you're either led by your faith or led by yourself. He goes on to say, look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers that mowed your fields are crying out, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. That phrase right there is the phrase of when you feed cows all of that really good stuff right before you take them to the slaughterhouse. That's literally what that phrase means. You fatten them up so you make more money right when you're about to kill them. And that's what he says. You're living in such a way that you're gaining all of this stuff only to die. How's that for a cheery thought? He closes his letter pretty bluntly, doesn't he? And then he says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. What does that mean? Let's go back and say it this way. I thought, this is not happy scripture. And so we went back and said, okay, what if it was happy? What if it was to be encouraging? He would say, the wages that you have given generously, paid generously, have been your witness. You 
are known as somebody who is honest and generous. The cries of the harvesters, the praises of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty as they were grateful for you. You've lived on earth in such a way that you've used your wealth to help others have a wealthy life as well. You've fattened others. You've strengthened others. You've given to others to make them stronger. And you have led a life with a witness that has led other people to be saved. They are not murdered. They are saved because they knew you. That's the way to turn this passage to the positive. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters. In this narrative now, he switches to speak to the ones who are living for the sake of the Lord, not for the sake of self. And he says, so, to all of you who are living for the Lord, who are making sacrifices for those around you, who are living holy, set-apart lives that are used by God to bring others to faith. He said, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Live every season and every circumstance side by side with God. That's what he's saying. Be patient. We're not in control of this world or the direction of it. It's like a season where there's lots of rain and the plants grow quickly or a season where the farmer's praying for rain because he's not going to have much of a crop if God doesn't send it. Whatever season we're in, and let's face it, farmers have every kind of season, right? It's one of the things they learn. They can't control what is going to happen in their crops. They plant them in faith, and sometimes they work like crazy to make sure they have water, and sometimes they put their feet up and just watch them grow. And it depends on the rains the Lord brings. He says, be patient and stand firm. Stand firm means to be confident in what you know because the Lord's coming is near. Live this day, this week, like February is going to be your last month on planet Earth. How would you do it differently? That's what he's saying. Live knowing that the Lord's coming is near. And I've visited people in the hospital who were about to die. No one of them ever said, gosh, it took so long to get here. Right? Not one in all my years has ever said, boy, did it take a long time to turn 80. Aren't you surprised you're this age? I mean, seriously, we look in the mirror and go, how did this happen? That increases. That's this verse. We know, those of us who've seen 60, we know that we're on the downhill side gaining speed, right? We're heading there. That's what it means. Live as if you know you're headed towards the Lord and you want to be ready when you get there. Don't grumble against one another or you'll be judged. 
the judge is standing at the door. Uh, you know what it means not to grumble against each other. I get put out. I said this last week, you know, I, we get more put out with Christians than we do with the non-Christians. We expect non-Christians to act that way. It's when the Christians act that way we get put out, right? Don't grumble. It's hard for all of us to live holy, separate, God-centered, spirit-led lives. It's hard for all of us to do that. Don't grumble just because they have a different set of weaknesses than you. Don't judge. Don't grumble because guess who's listening? He's standing at the door. If right now Jesus was at the back door, wouldn't you sit up a little straighter? Wouldn't you do everything you could to look like you're hanging on every word coming from my mouth? <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's the way we are. We, we, like, we, we know how to shape up when we need to, right? James is saying, you need to act like he's at the door every single time. God is aware of every moment of our lives. So live treating your brothers and your sisters, especially fellow Christians, with compassion, grace, love, generosity. Because James teaches that perspective will change everything. If you suffer, consider the prophets. If you lack patience, consider Job. He said, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. We have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So who or what taught you to be a compassionate person? When does grace just ooze out of you? When does your heart join with another because you so understand what they're going through? Perspective is usually gained because you see somebody who commits the same sins you do. We tend to have grace for our own sins and when we see those sins in another person. That's the truth of Romans 3.23. We are all sinners. We just have a different batch than the person we're sitting next to probably. Perspective is gained when you realize that even the prophets suffered and even Job lacked patience. And this is one of my favorite verses. Above all, brothers and sisters, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, I've heard this uh, used as profanity. It really doesn't mean that. It's, although I don't think we ought to be talking like that. But this is about being genuine. This is about not casually telling somebody, oh, I'm going to pray for you if you never pray for them. This is about not saying, oh, my heart goes out to you, unless your heart is going out to them. Don't let your words be shallow. It's that theme of James. Our words matter. Going forward, right now, words are going to become increasingly important. And more and more, the world is going to look to find a flaw in your words so that they can find a flaw in your faith. 
Jim and I live with that tension because it's hard to always get it right. James says once again, you be careful with these words you're putting out there in the world. Don't promise something you have no intention to fulfill. Don't say you care if you don't make the effort to care. Be genuine. It might be one of the greatest needs. And again, what is that? It's realizing we are different. Our words do carry more weight because people expect our words to come from the Holy Spirit within us. Our words matter. And then he said, oh, okay, did I miss one? Sorry, y'all. I think I'm, ah, yes. And the prayer offered in faith. This is the most difficult passage in James, I think. In the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is what? Powerful and effective. This is a series of verses about the importance of living as a family of faith, a family of God. Do you know out there in the world, loneliness, especially after 2020, is almost a disease. And loneliness exists in our churches as well. We are supposed to exist to help one another as brothers and sisters. We're a family. You all are my sisters. I'm supposed to care about you as I would care about my sister. And we're supposed to hold each other accountable. Is there somebody in your life that you've given permission to come up to you and go, you kind of need to clean it up a little bit? Is there somebody you have told, I need you to help me walk it at those high standards? I need you to give me the eye. You know, the mother's eye. You don't need words. It's just that look. Every Christian needs somebody in their lives who will say, no. Let me pray for you because we got to get this better. That's what it means because our prayers, when they're prayed from a, a life that is right with God, our prayers are powerful and effective. They change things. They change people. They change circumstances. But it's not just praying for somebody. It's praying for them like they're your family, like you care, like it matters. It's praying I like this verse. Elijah was a human being even as we are. Sometimes we study all these great, amazing individuals in Scripture. Understand there was nothing less human about them than there is about you. We underestimate and undervalue 
what God wants to accomplish through our lives. And I believe it's true of most Christians. I believe it's especially true of women. Women have kind of, you know, been given jobs in the church. I will tell you, children come to faith because of their moms almost all the time. Sunday school classes are taught and children are led to know God by women. Do not underestimate or undervalue what God wants to do through your life. And don't think it's the preacher's job or a deacon's job or, well, that's what men do. You are able to do anything God calls you to do. If you are called, you are already equipped by God's spirit because the two come hand in hand. God will not call you to something he does not also give you the ability to do. You just have to learn to lean on his ability. Elijah prayed and there was rain. Then he prayed and there wasn't rain. And you know he called down the fire from heaven and the altar gets consumed. And we think, whoa. He was a man just like any other man. He just knew God. Know God. Know your calling. And then trust God to help you fulfill your calling. But I promise you, God wants to use your life to do amazing, miraculous things. God wants to use your prayers to heal someone who's sick. God wants to use your words to turn someone from a wrong decision to a right one. Don't underestimate what God can do through you. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. When someone becomes a Christian, they impact their circle of influence. It was always meant to be multiplied. If your job in life is to sit with an individual who will one day preach to the masses. Uh, let me just say, Jim was an apartment kid who rode a bus because someone knocked on the door. <clears throat> and these two men that knocked on the door never had much. Nobody ever would have run them up a flagpole. But Jim's ministry, their ministry was multiplied through Jim's life. Does that make sense? I'm not bragging on Jim. He's just an illustration. You don't know the next time you help a Jim Dennison not be a lonely kid in an apartment. You don't know who that is. That's the point. God will bring them to us God wants us to be a family, a growing family. And he wants us to live so closely with him that he can lean down and say, that one's yours. Pay attention. You know, I've told you before, if you're sitting in church and you keep noticing this person, 
The minute you hear the final AM, you make a beeline for that person. If God draws your attention, it's for a reason. If you wake up in the middle of the night and someone is just on your brain, you're called to pray. We should have an active, living, righteous, productive faith. And anything less means we have work to do. In many ways, that's the purpose of James' letter. He says, be careful how you live your lives. Live according to God's standards in Scripture, not according to even the church's standards that say if you come, you're really good. You know, we used to, attendance is not a measure of success, okay? We need each other to pray. We need to really genuinely pray. We also need to hold one another accountable. If you do not have a person that you know is going to hold you accountable when you blow it, find them and tell them, your job is to make me a better Christian. Your job is to help me not mess up. We need to be a family of faith. We're supposed to help people be happier, stronger, more peaceful, more healthy, more close to God. We're supposed to contribute to their treasure in heaven. That's our job as a family of faith. So we need Old Testament thinking. We need to be set apart. We need to be holy. We need to be different in the world. We need Old Testament standards for holiness. Don't, if your standards have lowered, lift them up and keep lifting them up back until you could walk in the Old Testament and be known as a child of God. But do it all with the grace and the freedoms that came with the New Covenant and the New Testament. Do it all with the grace that Jesus had. Do it all through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you now because of the New Covenant. Last November, this was posted by what's called the Pagan Society or the Pagan, what's that word? Empire. And there is such a thing. The pagan empire posted this. We formally request that the Christian community stand accountable for the crimes of their faith and to publicly apologize for the persecution and harm they have committed to so many. That's not an old statement. That's last November. I can stand here and say that our job, my, my real job, is to spend a lot of time knowing that this is the direction of things. I can stand in front of you now and say, this is the way things are going, politically, socially, even in churches a little bit. Yes, there's never been a perfect Christian. Yes, when they brought this out, it had to do with uh, sex and sex scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. We are all a bunch of sinners needing a Savior, needing to live for our Savior. So that's not an old post. That is the direction of things. But here's the truth. I love this quote from Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. 
And that's where we've come to. Christians, we've gotten quiet, withdrawn. We've gotten publicly snarky about those who we think are messing up our lives and our world. We've been angry. We've been self-righteous. We've been scared. Now, we need to be people who do something. James, in chapter 1, said, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's the letter of James. Live it. Don't just hear it. You've heard me say we need a Nike faith because the world needs God. It's that swoosh. You will be accountable for everything that you learn this year. You cannot stand before God and say, gosh, I wish I'd known. It's so important to remember that knowing is not the same thing as doing. I've said this before, the Pharisees and Sadducees knew more about God than anyone. But they didn't know him when he stood with them. You can know a lot about the Bible. Measure yourself instead by James's standard. I will show them my faith by my works. It's really that clear. So let our works be genuine, spirit-led, and offered with the grace and compassion of Jesus Christ. This room could change this city if we all committed to it. Jesus had 12. It's not that we don't know. It's that we don't do what we know we ought to do. And don't think I set myself above. I'm in that same category as anyone else when I say that. I don't teach it as judgment. I teach it as truth. And I teach it as the common struggle for all of us. So let's raise our standards. Let's choose to be godly instead of just good. Let's pray. We hear you, Lord, and we bow before you, knowing we are now accountable for every word that James has taught us. May we leave this place intent on living what we know and not settling for anything less. Help us to be that righteous person whose prayers do great things in this world. For we prayed in the name of Jesus. For your glory, Lord, and for your purpose. Amen.